Bart Bart always has his Bible and his water bottle. <laughs> Bart, I'm glad you're back. It's great to have you here, and uh, I'm proud to be your successor, whatever that is. But anyway, <laughs> let's pray for Bart and uh, ask the Lord to bless us and him as he speaks to us. Lord, thank you for uh, this brother. Thank you for the call you've had on his life, for the ways you've stretched us and taught us over the years. Lord, I praise you for the ministry, uh, the good ministry you've given him over the years here and the number of students who've been touched by him. Lord, I pray you'll bless him now and us as he uh, opens the word of God to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. As you know, uh, I've got the joy and the privilege of traveling outside the bounds of North America on behalf of the college as a chaplain at large. And at the end of today's talk, I want to share one story uh, from the most recent trip that I took. One of the things I'm finding is that no matter what culture it is, I'm glad Brad is here tonight, and I want to really encourage you to go hear what he has to say I've got good friends in Papua New Guinea. We can talk about it afterwards. But uh, when you go to another culture, to another language, to a distinctly different group of people, you'll find, if you get that opportunity, that the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ are completely cross-cultural. I believe the Holy Spirit is the only cross-cultural person in the universe in the, in the true sense of the word that what is spoken of in the Word of God works. It's not just interesting, though it is that. It actually works in all different settings. And there's one really good reason for it. It's because it's the work of God. Jesus said something very strange to his disciples. And I think it really relates to you. How many of you are seniors here? Let me see hands. Oh, good. I'm speaking to everybody today, but I I am going to lean on the seniors just a little bit because it's my last shot at you guys. And you were the group that was here when I was chaplain, so you're the only group that's been here for all four years that was here when I was here at the beginning. So you got a special place in my heart, so I'm going to be tough on you. Jesus said something to his disciples near the end of his life. In fact, after he had died and risen... It's in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. And it's a sentiment that he echoed on the last night that he was with them before his crucifixion as well. He said something very simple. Verse 21 of chapter 20 of John. Again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, Jesus, as you know, was, spoke with a southern accent. He, he said, y'all, there, actually. He said, as the Father sent me, so I send y'all. They had two words for you in the language that was written in the Gospel of John, Greek. One for you specific, you Ben Patterson, you Darnisha, and one for y'all, the whole group. And he was speaking to the group of his closest friends and followers. And he said, just as the Father sent me into the world, so I'm going to send y'all. I'm going to send all of you together out into the world. So it begs the question, how did the Father send Jesus into the world? How, how did he do it? 
Because however the Father sent Jesus, that's the way Jesus was going to send us all. Those who've decided to follow him and trust him. I want to read a, an excerpt from a book by Ken Geyer. He's got four or five books that I think are really refreshing to read slowly. He takes gospel passages and he's an excellent writer and he simply writes them uh, in a story sort of way. Let me read this one. It'll take about a minute and a half, two minutes. It's a beautiful. For the census, the royal family has to travel 85 miles. Joseph walks. Picture this. Don't just listen. Picture. Be like children. The holy family had to travel 85 miles. Joseph walks while Mary, nine months pregnant, rides side saddle on a donkey, feeling every jolt, every rut, and every rock in the road. By the time they arrive, the small hamlet of Bethlehem is swollen by an influx of travelers. The inn is packed, people feeling lucky if they're able to negotiate even a small place on the floor. Now it's late, everyone's asleep, and there's no room. Fortunately, the innkeeper is not all shekels and mites. True, his stable's crowded with his guests' animals, but if they could squeeze out a little privacy there in the stable, they're welcome to it. Joseph looks over at Mary and says, we'll take it. It's a disquieting place for a woman in the throes of childbirth, far from home, far from family, far from what she expected for her firstborn. The birth would not be easy either for the mother or for the child. For every royal privilege for this son ended at conception. A scream from Mary knifes through the calm of the silent night. Joseph returns breathless, water schlossing. I knew I'd do that. Swishing around from the wooden bucket in his hand. The top of the baby's head was already pushing its way into the world. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all of Judea, rushes to her side. The involuntary contractions are not enough, and Mary has to push with all her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery from amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High God, umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. That's how the Father sent Jesus into the world, most literally. There are no shortcuts for Jesus. There was no royal carriage that brought him in as the Son of God. He came in the same way you did. He came in humbly and in total vulnerability. Andre Nouwen, the late great writer of uh, devotional literature, I would say, and theology, speaks about how Jesus came in on a downward journey, not an upward journey. And that if we're to follow him, it's a downward journey. It's not upward mobility. It's actually downward mobility. To follow Jesus Christ means that you lose some privileges. 
and that some things have to die. It's not a place of power and prestige. It's a place of vulnerability. Second, it's a place of hiddenness. Now one also points out. In Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And he grew in favor. Favor with God and favor with humankind. He grew. He was plunked down right into the middle of life as it is, ordinary life. And in that life, he grew like every other baby in stature. My granddaughter ran into my office this morning in my home. She and her mother came over to do some laundry. And she runs in and she has baby dino in her hand. Baby dino is a little puppet lizard that we call a dinosaur. And so while I was working on the final touches for this talk, she jumps up into my arms and she's just beginning to talk. And she goes, Dinor. It's a dinor, Appa. And I'm going, dinosaur. She says, yeah, dinor. You know? Well, well, Jesus was like that. There were no shortcuts. He didn't come out speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He came out babbling like a baby. And he had to learn his languages. Three of them, by the way. He was at least trilingual. You know, I was in Mexico one time, and they, this guy who spoke kind of broken English, but pretty good English, he said, now, what's the word for... For somebody who speaks three languages in English, he, he asked me, kind of in broken English. I said, well, trilingual. He said, well, what about two languages? I said, bilingual. He says, well, what would be the word for somebody who speaks one language? And I said, well, we don't really use the term, but monolingual. And he said, oh, I thought it was just American. <laughs> and here I thought I was helping him. Well, Jesus learned three languages the hard way. He learned about the sociology of his culture the hard way. He learned about bullies the hard way. He didn't pull off miracles in his childhood. He was an ordinary child who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's how the Father sent him into the world. That's how he sends us into the world. He, he lived a hidden life for 30 years. Nobody hardly heard of him. He made tables and he made wheels. And the word was out a century later that the tables he made were really good. They lasted. He was a good carpenter. I imagine he hit his thumb with a hammer a number of times. I don't think there was a band of angels that pushed it out of the way at the last second. He was ordinary. And God sent him into the midst of life as it is, and that's how he will send you. When Brad went to Papua New Guinea to one of the 800 people groups, I don't know if you caught that, but that's 800 distinctive, uh, mutually unintelligible language groups. It's one of the most fascinating places on earth for linguists and for anthropologists to study. When Brad and his wife went in there, they went in and just lived amongst the people. Did you catch that? For four and a half years, just learning the language. There was not, there's no shortcut to learning that language, is there? And he said, we were just then beginning to be able to share. Most of the missiology of today says that it takes seven years on the field for a person to become culturally adept enough to share Christ in an effective way within the culture. One of the sad things is that the average stay of a missionary on the field is much shorter than that seven years. It's a, it's a crisis within missions today that we're trying to work on. 
God will send you out into an ordinary life, and you will have to grow just like Jesus did. I just started a book last night written by a former Westmont professor, Dave Downing. It's called The Most Reluctant Convert, and it's about C.S. Lewis. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar. And uh, in this book, he mentions a little uh, uh, thing about Lewis that I found very fascinating. Uh, Lewis, in his typical way, takes complex ideas and shrinks them down into, into images and language that we can grasp quickly. Downing says this, in Lewis's scholarly books, Lewis took this principle a step further, arguing that reality is not self-interpreting, that a great deal of what we see depends on who we are and what we've been taught to see. Now, let me slow that down a little bit. Reality is not self-interpreting. That means you don't just come into the world and go, oh, two and two is four, eight and eight is 16. Oh, there should be no racial prejudice. And I think we should work through world, with world peace through reconciliation in Jesus. You just don't pop out with those thoughts. In fact, some of what seems to be true in real life is actually completely false. That's why so many of Jesus' teachings are opposite. If you want to be great, you become the least. If you want to be a leader, you become a servant. If, if nature was self-interpreting, you'd say you want to become great, you become the president of whatever it is. According to Jesus, that's not necessarily so. And then he, he quotes C.S. Lewis from The Magician's Nephew, where the character says this, For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what sort of a person you are. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. That, that's the part about what you've been taught to see. Like some of you have been taught to see racial differences first instead of humanness first. So it creates fear. This person's different than I am. I've been trying to unlearn this for the last 20 years because I was taught people of other racial backgrounds were so different that I had to be a little bit afraid. It's a racist attitude. And it was right there inside your chaplain at large. And I'm embarrassed to say every once in a while it still pops its ugly head up inside of me. And so for 20 years I've been intentionally working on trying to change that thinking that I was handed in my childhood and through my society to God's perspective. But the second part is just as crucial. It's who we are as persons. Jesus, I think at one of the most critical junctures of his life, stated publicly and was affirmed by God the Father for who he thought he was at his core identity. You remember the scene. John the Baptist was gently persuading people with comforting words like, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and unless you repent, this is kind of the tone of John the Baptist. Axes and roots and, you know. And all these people who realized that the root of their life was corrupt were coming to the river and he was baptizing them. It was a symbol that said we, it was what outsiders from the Jewish nation, people who were outside the Jewish nation, had to go through baptize, baptism to become Jews or to become God-fearers. And what John the Baptist did was he excommunicated the whole nation of Israel. 
And he just said, all of you people who are the chosen people, you have to come like the Gentiles and go through this baptism of repentance. Now, this was a baptism for people who'd messed up their lives and realized it. Why then did Jesus get baptized? He hadn't messed up his life. He's the one person who didn't need that baptism. Why did he do it? Because his way was the downward way. His way was not the, hey, I'm a little better than you guys. I don't need to be baptized. Repentance is sort of foreign to me since I'm sinless. No. No. He said, I love you so much, I'm going to identify with you, and I'm going to go through. There's no shortcuts. I'm going through everything you went through. And he goes under the water. He comes up, and a voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, what was God well pleased about? I mean, he hadn't preached a single sermon yet. To our knowledge, he hadn't done any miracles. He certainly hadn't died for our sins or risen from the dead. He'd been a good son. He'd been an excellent carpenter. And now he was taking the first step of identifying with all the brokenness of his people. And God says, this is my son. That was Jesus' central identity. Is it yours? That you're a daughter of God? That you're a son of God? Is that the central root of your identity? It was for Jesus. He was always that, but he had to grow into it. Not grow into the reality of it. He was the Son of God forever. But when he chose the way of the incarnation, when the Father sent him as that little baby, he grew into the, the realization of who he was all that time. No shortcuts for Jesus. So you're going to be in a process. If he sends us the way the Father sent Jesus, then you are on a process like that. And I wonder if you've gotten to the River Jordan yet where you've realized your central identity is in Christ. Now, let me throw something out here. Just because you've been raised as a Christian, as most of you have been, does not mean you've come to the River Jordan. There's only one person, and one person only, who can make that decision, and that's you. You seniors? You know, when you leave here six weeks from now, I can just tell you that 10 years from now, there'll be only a small percentage of you radically following Jesus Christ. I would guess 10%. That's based on 16 years of experience. And you say, oh, well, that won't be me. Well, I've met a lot of alums who said that and aren't. And there's only one thing that can make that difference, and that's a decision you make. Not your parents, not your professor, not your best friends, not even some mentor in literature. It's only a decision you can make. Do you intend for the rest of your life, not for the rest of the week, do you intend to follow Jesus Christ with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, so help you God? Have you decided that? And if you have, the axe has been laid at the root of the tree. Because Jesus wants you to become a certain sort of person. He wants you, in fact, to become his sort of person. He wants to give you his self, as C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He wants to have you trade in your sorry self, and he'll give you his self. And then he wants you to grow into the fullness of that. In apostolic language, 
Paul said in Colossians 2, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, that's how you receive Him, as Lord, so go on growing in Him, rooted and deepened in the faith as you were taught it. It's interesting that the axe is laid at the root of the tree and yet we're to be rooted. We cut off the, the, the root that goes down into self and we put down roots into Christ. That's a lifelong journey. I'm still on it. Dr. Gady's still on it. Dr. Winter's still on it. Those who have decided to follow Jesus are on that journey for life. Are you? Are you on that journey? There's only one way to be on it, and that's to intend to be on it. William Law, in a great book, I love the title of old, titles of old books. It was called, A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life. Now, if that was put out today, it'd just be the call. But this one, just the call to a devout life. No, it was a call to the devout and holy life. And it wasn't just that kind of call. It was a serious call to the devout and holy life. And in that, he says, the one mark of a, a, without which you will not grow into a devout and holy life is intention. That you intend to follow Jesus. Have you intended that? Only you know the answer. I want to share this story from Mexico because I think it illustrates the points I've been making. That we'll be sent into the world with vulnerability, not with power. That our life will be a hidden one like Jesus was. You'll be out in the midst of life as it is, like Brad in the village. It may be for you a corporate culture or your neighborhood or graduate school. You'll be in ordinary life as it is, hidden, but hidden in Christ. And that you will grow into your full identity. I went to Chiapas, Mexico about three weeks ago now. Now let me give you a little geography lesson. Chiapas, Mexico is the southernmost state in Mexico. Some would say it's the poorest state in Mexico. By the way, Mexico is the United States of Mexico. And it is in North America, just in case you're wondering. So when you say in Mexico, I'm an American, they say so are we. Uh, well, but I'm a North American, so are we. Well, I'm from the United States, so are we. You know, they love to bug you about it when you get to know them. Well, Chiapas is the poorest state, some would say, in Mexico. It, it, it has Mayan Indian population in it. There's an armed rebellion that's been going on for 10 years that is now simmering down called the Zapatista Rebellion. You may have seen pictures in the newspaper because I know you all read the newspaper every day. You should be. That's the world you're being sent out into. Better get to know it. But you've seen pictures of Subcommander Marcos maybe with a ski mask, a black ski mask, camouflage uniform and a pipe sticking out of the ski mask. It's an odd picture. But he commands the rebels in Chiapas. About five years ago, I learned that the senator to the National Assembly, to their Congress, from that area, was a believer. And actually, we tried to get him to come here and speak in chapel. His name is Pablo Salazar. And uh, something didn't work out, and he wasn't able to come, but I always kind of wanted to meet him. And then he was elected governor of Chiapas last year. Now, I knew this guy was a believer. He's actually a Nazarene. So he comes from the Protestant background, which is a very strange thing to be elected in a 90% Catholic country and state. 
And he got elected by 70%. And I found myself going, how? So I did a little looking into it, and I found out that he'd, been, he'd grown up very poor in a very poor village of Chiapas. That he had nine brothers and sisters. That he knew what it was like, even though he himself was not an indigenous person, not a Mayan Indian. He, he was a mestizo, mixed race. So he's a little bit more privileged, but not much. He lived in a poor area in, 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 out in the rural areas. And he had come to Christ. And he'd grown in Christ. And he ran for the Senate because of his call for Christ, I later found out. When he was elected governor, one year and a half ago actually, he asked his pastor, Jonathan Salgado, if he would come and be on his cabinet and be a spiritual advisor to him as the governor. Amazing. So the pastor left. We invited that pastor to the prayer breakfast last year and the governor. The pastor came, but the governor didn't. The pastor loved it. So he kind of leaned on the governor, and this year the governor came. And frankly, he just kind of put his toe in the water. I mean, he came and did a lot of political business, you know, which, of course, is his job. But he came to a few of the events, and he was deeply, deeply touched. So he invited us to come visit. And my wife and I just felt like we've got to do it right now. We've got to strike while the iron is hot. So we took a Westmont alum along with us, Jason Sanuki, and we flew down there. We had no idea what to expect. We had four days scheduled to just be with them. Well, we had no idea what was about to happen. The governor decided, unbeknownst to us, that we should meet every one of his cabinet members that we could while we were there individually. I, I have no idea why. And so we did. We met with his entire cabinet practically, uh, individually, for hours at a time in their busy schedules. The head of security, that's the head of all the police and prisons for the state of Chiapas. That'd be like saying the head of all the prisons, the highway patrols, and all the local police for the state of California. And this guy loved Jesus. He wasn't a career politician. In fact, he'd been a professional lawyer. He'd never been involved in politics. But he loved Jesus. He was highly successful and professional. And the governor tapped and said, I want you to be in charge of the toughest area, security. And I'll come back to that one. We met with the head of housing. We met with the head of welfare, two, two different women. We met with the head of all the hospitals. We met with the head of their IRS. We met with uh, the head of rural development. Key issues, key people. Every one of them knew Jesus. Every one of them was there to serve Jesus. And everyone had grown in their professional life quietly in a hidden way and had become very good at what they did. But along with that, they had become a certain type of person. One thing they'd become was incorruptible, hopefully. Because corruption in Latin America is the number one problem. I've been to about 10 or 11 of the 26 Latin countries. And every time I say, what's your biggest challenge? I get the exact same answer in every Latin country, corruption. And I always ask, what's being done? And they all say, nothing. Everything has failed. And I've been doing this for the last five years, and frankly, it gets discouraging. I mean, when you talk to these people, they start weeping about it the people who care about their countries. I come to Chiapas, and it's literally, picture this in your mind. It's 11 o'clock at night, and we're on the cell phone, we're driving around, and 
Jonathan Salgado, the pastor turned advisor, says, oh, we're going to go meet with the head of security at his office. I said, at 11 o'clock at night? He's still in his office? Oh, yeah, he works all, he does that all the time. Okay, so we go through the gates. There's guards, there's guns, there's, you know, you don't want to go into a Mexican prison. Let me just tell you that right now. So we go in there, and we meet this very jolly guy, handsome guy, about 45 years old. He's got kids. Actually, I pitched Westmont, hoping that maybe they'll come here next year or in the next couple of years. And, uh, and, and he, I said, what's your biggest challenge? He said, corruption. I said, well, what's happening? Are you able, have you figured anything out? And his, his face lit up, you guys. It's the first time I've seen that happen. And he said, it's, go, it's going really good. I said, why? He said, well, in my first year in office, I, I took 95% of the leaders of the police in the whole state, and I threw them in jail. <laughs> I said, you what? He said, well, I did research, and I found it wasn't too hard to figure out which ones were corrupt, and so I fired them, and then I pressed charges, and 95% of them are in jail. And I said, well, that makes you really popular, doesn't it? He said, no, you need to pray. It makes me very, my life's in danger. My family's life is in danger. And he said, then I, then I marginalized in a sense. I mean, the ones that I couldn't quite put in jail, the kind of the old guard, I sort of, he didn't say exactly what he did with them, but he used the word marginalized. So I guess, they're, you know, like directing traffic or something and. And he said, I hired a whole bunch of new people. Now, these new people coming in, they see that 95% of the old leaders, the captains, are in jail. So that kind of gives them an idea that if I can put those guys in jail for corruption, I can put them in jail for corruption. And he says, then I doubled all their salaries. That was brilliant. One of the reasons there's so much corruption is the system pays them so little, they virtually have to be corrupt to live. And then he said, I got him new equipment. I said, what do you mean? He says, come here. We go out in the parking lot. It's now midnight. And there's like 20 Chevy pickup truck, four-wheel drives, really cool-looking vehicles with the lights on them, and they're shiny. They're brand new. He says, now they've got some pride. You guys, that was a believer who grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and people, putting his life on the line to change his state. And that was happening in every single department in that cabinet. God needs people like that, and you're some of them. He needs them right here in the United States. You you don't have to go to Mexico or Papua New Guinea or China. I hope a bunch of you will. But you don't have to, and most of you won't, because most of you are meant to bring that kind of leadership right here in the United States of America. And the Lord knows we need it. That's the way it'll work for you. You'll grow. You know who you're going to be tomorrow. Seniors, let me get you one more time here. Who you're going to be 10 years from now, tomorrow, is being determined today. And actually, that's true for you first year students, second year, third year. Who you will be tomorrow is being determined today. It's inexorable. Whatever you're deciding today is who you will become later on. If you're deciding to study hard and apply yourself to your studies, and you keep that attitude every day, you will grow into a professional who will be like this this man, Mauricio is his name. 
who then was given this position of responsibility and extreme danger. If you want to pray for somebody, I've committed to pray for him every day and for the safety of his family. Because he's on every hit list in, in Chiapas. If you determine now to be excellent with your mind, you will be a very bright person with much to offer the world. Good example in world news right now is Condoleezza Rice. She was a commencement speaker here. She went to the University of Denver. When I went to the University of Denver, we were classmates. The only difference was I started when I was 19 and she started when she was 15. She's a little brighter than me. She went on to Stanford, became the provost, and now she's really one of the top advisors to President Bush. She's grown in wisdom and in stature and in favor, and now she's put in this position. But there was no shortcut. She had to go get her Ph.D. She had to do her dissertation. She had to teach her first class. She had to go into the administration. She... It's the same for you. Who you will be tomorrow is being determined today. So I want to ask you one question as I close. Are you intending to be like Jesus? Are you intending to follow Jesus? If you're not intending to do it this weekend, if you're not intending to do it this afternoon, then odds are you won't intend to do it 10 years from now. Because guess what? It gets harder, not easier. You ask any person 20 years older, is it easier to follow Christ when you're 40 or 50 or 60? Or is it, easy, or is it tougher? They'll all tell you it's tougher. So you better start learning to do it now. And my suggestion would be that you don't try to do it alone. Jesus gathered a band of men and women around him. The women are mentioned in Luke 8, verses 1 through 4. The men are mentioned, as you well know, the disciples and the apostles in many places. He gathered a band of men and women around him, and he molded them. They were people who laid the axe at the root of the tree and they decided to follow Jesus. They, in fact, decided to become like Jesus. And indeed, they did. And they changed the world. Those people are no different than you. Not one iota different. They are human beings with flaws, with messed up family backgrounds, with fears, with sins. But they made an intentional decision, and you can too. And if you do, you'll have a hidden life for a while. You'll have a growing life. You'll have a vulnerable life. But you will become the sort of man or woman that Jesus wants you to be. And like Mauricio and his family, you'll have an opportunity to serve in major ways while you're de- later if you develop gradually along the process. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of your call. You call us to your son, Jesus. You don't call us to a system. You don't even call us to a set theology. You call us to your son. And he calls us to one another and sends us out into the world the way you sent him. I pray that every man and woman here in this gym today would decide to follow Jesus at the deepest possible level. In his name, amen. Thank you so much, Bart. <clears throat> well, my uh, voice is a little thick because uh, we're here to announce that uh, our dear friend Darnisha Taylor followed Jesus to Westmont last August, 
And she's following Jesus back to Grand Rapids in about two weeks, which is to say she came here for a year, has blessed us and stretched us and taught us. And uh, I'm sad but also confident that uh, Darnish has really heard the voice of God. And uh, it is my sad privilege to say, well, in two weeks, we'll say goodbye to Darnisha. And, well, Darnisha, say something anyway, will you? <laughs> I love you, Ben. <laughs> you all, I want to praise the Lord for he has really taken me on this journey. The very journey that Bart is talking about, growing me in wisdom and stature. And my father has, my heavenly father has been so faithful and so good. And, and I don't know and don't understand all of his timing, but I do know that he had me here for this year, for this time, for this moment in my life and in your life. And I pray that you will be encouraged to love the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with everything that is in you, with every gift, with every talent with all of your intellect, with all of your beauty, with all of your, your shortcomings. Use what he has given you to glorify him. And I'm telling you, he will bless you. He will fill you up. He will keep you going from one day to the next. So it has been my privilege to serve you, but it has mostly been my privilege to serve my Heavenly Father. For now, receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace as you follow him today and forever. Amen.